The only thing is, I don't know a whole lot about show business. It's easy. Any, Any monkey, monkey can, can learn, learn it. Welcome to the Indiana Jones Universe, the podcast that explores the incredible adventures of the world's greatest globetrotting archaeologist, Indiana Jones. Each episode is a casual and somewhat humorous opinionated conversation with a slightly sophisticated analytical study of the expanded universe content from the Indiana Jones franchise. You can expect to find discussions about the adventures of young Indiana Jones, the further adventures of Indiana Jones comic books, the Staff of Kings and Emperors Tomb video games, the Indiana Jones novels, the original soundtracks, and so much more. What's going on, guys? And welcome back to the Indiana Jones Universe podcast. Uh, thanks so much for joining us for episode 74, in which today we are continuing uh, our review of the adventures of young Indiana Jones as we look at chapter 21, the scandal of 1920. Uh, what an episode we have to look at here. Uh, in this one, Indy travels uh, all the way to New York, where he's going to work as a stage manager for a Broadway show and also happens to date three women at the exact same time. So quite a comedic farce here with a marvelous musical score and as always joining me to talk about this episode is my good fellow young indie enthusiast and friend elijah how you doing today i'm doing really well uh, i'm looking forward to reviewing this episode it's um i think it's one of the fun ones um and it's important to distinguish the different types of young indie episodes you know like for instance phantom train is a heist uh and i'd say this one is a musical Oh, absolutely. I think it has kind of that fun sort of feeling to it, and I think really takes sort of what we saw in Mystery of the Blues to a whole nother level. And right off the bat, I'm just going to say, I think this episode is an absolute masterpiece. Um, I think George Lucas hit this spot on uh, with what he was trying to do with this episode. You can definitely tell they had a very clear vision for this one. And obviously there's nothing here that has to do with Indiana Jones, but if you've made it this far into the show, you've kind of accepted that Young Indy doesn't really follow that sort of track, right? Um, obviously we see that in other episodes like Oganga, um, even though it probably wasn't intentional, you see a lot of that character development uh, shining through from how Indy turns from sort of this teenager into the archaeologist that he becomes in the movies, right? Attack of the Hawkmen has a lot of those scenes that are very reminiscent of Raiders of the Lost Ark with the, uh, you know, biplane escape and the truck sequence uh, and Passion for Life. Indy's afraid of snakes in Africa. So despite not seeing any connections uh, to the movies or really any indie characteristics in this episode, I still think uh, this was a really, really fantastic one. Yeah, and I mean that said, it's I think it's also one of the hardest ones for me to watch just because of how terrible Indy is in the episode. I mean, like I think this one is a parody of the way he behaves around women through the show, you know. Um, and I think it really makes fun of Indy at his expense, and it's kind of fun to see. Oh, absolutely, and I think you really laugh at Indy's expense in this episode, uh, quite similar to an old Indy bookend, I think, uh, which is a lot of fun depending on how you uh, view this episode. Um, but yeah, let's just get right into it with just some fun facts about this one. Uh, first of all, it was directed by Sid McCartney. Uh, this was also written by Jonathan Hales, who worked with Lucas pretty extensively on the Star Wars prequels after Young Indy. 
Uh, and this actually also aired uh, as separate 45-minute parts internationally. Uh, so kind of similar to what we had with Mystery of the Blues, where it aired as a 90-minute feature uh, originally in the first run of the show in the U.S., but then had some George Hall bookends uh, in Europe, U.K., Australia, etc. Uh, this episode also had a couple of Emmy Awards uh, for costume design, visual effects, and music. And we have some returning characters with Sidney Bechet, Hemingway, and Goldie. And uh, a couple of big names in this one, when you look at some of the actors and actresses. Uh, Anne Hesch, probably the biggest one. Uh, Brenda Strong as well. And then also, one kind of fun thing that I wanted to mention, which I've been wanting to mention this ever since I noticed it, which was probably like two years ago now. Uh, last time I watched Dead Poet Society, uh, there's actually a character from Young Indian there, uh, Gloria, who is played by Alexandra Powers, has a small minor role in Dead Poet Society, and is uh, a pretty big, uh, you know, character in this episode which is kind of cool yeah i do like um a lot of things about this episode especially the character of george gershwin i love the way tom beckett you know the way he speaks in the role and i think it's really clear that he enjoys it like in all my favorite sequences where he's playing the piano he's generally just smiling and having a great time um but this episode starts out on a train which i'm a number of episodes do this um and you see a lot of cool shots of it as it comes in and this is really where we're introduced to peggy I find it a little bit harder to like her um, right from the start because of the way she, you know, is taking up the seats with her stuff. It's kind of rude. Um, and I do find it a little hard to believe her shift from being rude to Indy to liking him because it's just so sudden. I don't know if you had any issues with that. I see where you're coming from, definitely, with the whole thing that she's kind of unlikable and, like, how does she transition in just one train ride, which we can imagine was just a couple of hours, to hating Indy to pretty much, like, falling in love with him, so to speak. Peggy sort of is like, I know men like you, you know, big city masher, which is ironic because Indy almost kind of actually evolves into that type. And I think it just becomes more hilarious that Indy actually, you know, becomes that type of guy. And what I really like as well about the beginning part of this episode is just the idea of enforcing, you talked about, you know, Gershwin, who I think is a fantastic character. I, I agree with your points there. Uh, how about the music of Rhapsody in Blue, which is actually mentioned a couple of times. We hear it plenty throughout the episode, and it starts off with this, you know, huge train going all the way to the big city, right, New York. Um, so I love as well the amazing font that comes up that says Scandal of 1920. I just think when you talk about the atmosphere and the environment of the 1920s, to me, this episode takes that idea that was established in Mystery of the Blues one step further, and I really, really enjoyed this episode in terms of the environment and the feel and the aesthetic of the 20s. I thought it was marvelous. I like the point you made because I think it's really a self-fulfilling prophecy um, about how Indy sort of becomes that big city masher. But also, I love this, you know, the set design in this episode. Everything feels really lived in, and it does feel like the 1920s to me. Um, one thing, small detail I liked was um, there's a shot of the theater right outside it. There's the brick wall, and it has um, a poster for the scandals of 1920, and the picture actually has Tom Beckett's face as Gershwin on it. So that's just a nice little detail right there. And another little detail um, is when the train arrives in New York, the sign on the building says Grand Central Station. However, the actual name is the Grand Central Terminal uh, because Terminal was more of the standard railroad nomenclature of the um you know early 1910s and stuff wow that's really interesting actually i didn't pick up on that to my memory i do believe there were a couple of the maps in young india or perhaps it was raiders uh, there was one where sort of the countries were named incorrectly uh and they were not dated to the time of the film but rather correct uh when they were producing the movie um so yeah kind of similar like that um which is interesting and 
you know, one thing I think that's kind of interesting, too, when you talk about this whole train sequence, um, which I think is, you know, really well done for, like, an opening of the episode. I think it's really nice and simple, but it gets the episode started in a really sort of um, climactic way, right? You're kind of interested to see what happens to Peggy, right? I wouldn't necessarily say you're invested in her character, but you kind of want to see where this story goes, right? I mean, you're kind of like, okay, well, for some reason, Peggy now likes Indy. I mean, we don't really know why. Um, we clearly see Indy just kind of likes her because of her beauty, really. I mean, and also she sings, obviously. We see that one moment. Um, but <laughs> can we talk about the mini scene with the apple? Uh, which is, I mean, you talked about sort of like, why does Peggy, you know, start off as somebody who hates Indy and then actually likes him? I mean, this is the turning point of that. The fact that she sees the apple, which to me was like still very unconvincing. But first of all, the apple falls off and just kind of rolls under the train. So... I mean, if you already kind of acknowledge the fact that Peggy was the way she was, I would have just discarded the apple at that point. An apple is not worth this, right, you know? And also, I would have gone around to the other seat behind her, but, like, he pretty much crawls down and gets, like, right up, like, into her. I'm like, this is, like, definitely, like, a little too far at this point. And you can tell Indy is really amused by all of this, but he's, he's very interested in Peggy, despite you know, the misrecognition that she originally uh, sort of perceives him as. I think it might be a little overconfidence on his part. I mean, he's very like, oh, yeah, she's cute. I'm going to get her. And she's like, oh, my goodness, this guy is awful. And then, of course, she changes her mind. That said, I, I do think that that really sets up Indy's eventual downfall at the end of the episode really well, because, you know, his inflated ego gets smashed into a cake. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, that's exactly true, and, and we'll get to that scene in a little bit. Uh, but two last things to mention about the train sequence before we move on. Um, and I'm sure this wasn't intentional, but I've rewatched Raiders so many times where I had to pick up on this. Uh, when Peggy is reading the magazine, you'll notice her eyes barely peek oh. above <laughs> the magazine, just like Tote. Uh, and uh, that whole scene uh, when he's, you know, traveling to uh, Nepal, which I just thought was hilarious. And then secondly... During the apple sequence, which we were just talking about, um, you'll notice that Indy, you know, gives her the apple, right? And he's like, oh, I wasn't very hungry, right? You know, just trying to obviously give her the apple. Um, and she eats the whole thing. And that really reminded me of the Tolstoy sequence in Travels with Father, when Indy oh, gives him the apple wow. and, like, eats the whole thing. He's like, you ate it all! He said right? one bite. Yeah, one bite, exactly. And there's that whole, you know, philosophical ideology that pans out there. That reminds me of, um, also when, uh, Indy Sr. was in the, uh, the airship, and then it's the no-ticket sequence and he has the newspaper. Also, I mean, like, if Indy's not hungry, why would he risk so much to get that apple? Just saying. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. And yeah, so moving on to sort of the next scene here. Uh, one of the things I think that's kind of interesting that I didn't really pick up on when I first watched this episode, but, you know, it, it's kind of interesting how this Broadway connection is brought up at the beginning. But Indy obviously doesn't even know he's going to be affiliated with Gershwin at all, right? I mean, he just kind of meets him, you know, through Sidney Bechet. Um, so it's kind of interesting how you almost forget about that by the time Indy becomes a stage manager, right? And we kind of forget that Peggy was going to be involved with the Broadway show. Obviously, she doesn't know which one yet. Um, but I thought that was kind of interesting that that kind of sneaks back up. And there's a lot of elements like that in this episode, which I think were so well done, where certain little details come back up. You just have to give it time and you just have to kind of remember them, uh, which I think is really, really well done about this. So... Uh, finally, after they leave the train, you know, you just mentioned the train station there, uh, they finally have this parting of ways, I guess. And I love the quote from the cab driver who's like, 
you want this cab or are you just eating lunch? Uh, <laughs> when they leave and they're kind of holding him up there. I love that point you made because I think the setup and payoff uh, in this episode is really well done. And that's one of the things that's, you know, an example of good filmmaking. Uh, for instance, on the train, when she sings, uh, that comes up later because that's the reason why Indy vouches for her eventually. Um, and then, of course, that epi the episode is going to be rounded out with her performing. Everything ties together, and like George Lucas would always say, it rhymes, right? And I think it's interesting, too, as well, how we see the transition from each character to the next. And it's also kind of blended together. It's not like they're like, okay, let's introduce Peggy, we forget about her for a while, and then she'll come back at the Broadway show later. I mean, of course, there was a, lo a little bit of time where you kind of forgot Peggy existed, but there was still these moments, especially sort of in the pool sequence uh, when they're playing billiards, right, where he's still thinking about Peggy despite the fact that they, you know, missed each other at the hotel. So I like as well how we already get introduced to Kate in the next scene when we're still kind of thinking about Peggy and what Indy may have lost by the fact that he sort of missed her, but then also he gained something by meeting Kate. So interesting kind of dynamic that's happening there. Uh, and we see him obviously walk to Kate's apartment. Uh, you know, he's trying to stay with this family uh, called the Jacksons, who supposedly aren't home for some reason. And I love this random guy who kind of comes in and is like, uh, wrong door, amigo, party's in here, right? And India's kind of like, what is going on here? And he sneaks in for some free food, which is hilarious. I love how he's balancing like a, his plate, his fedora, he's got a cracker in his mouth, just like trying to take as much as he can. He's pulling a Remy right here and just eating as much as he can. And then finally sits down uh, and meets Kate for a a really fantastic scene here. I swear half this episode is about Indy and his stomach. I mean, there's the <laughs> right. apple, there's him sneaking into the apartment for food, there's one he gets stuffed when he goes to dinner three times. Right, and that's, I think, a really great point. I like how we're each making these connections and building it up even further. Uh, but yeah, this is, I think this is interesting about this episode, the way it's structured and the format of it, right? And I think at this point, we're not even 10 minutes into the episode, I want to say, during this scene, which is one of my favorites. Um, and I have to say, you know, just right off the bat, to me personally, I think Kate was the best choice if, if I was Indy out of all three of them because one of the things that I love is you very rarely see anyone else who is interested in what Indy is interested in. And I like that somebody of his age is immediately fascinated when he says he's majoring in archaeology. I like that point you make. I think she really is compatible to his intellect. Um, and, you know, if he followed his head, maybe he would have ended up with her instead of with three girls and then none. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really well done about this scene, I mean, you were talking about sort of how George Lucas, I think, filmically really did a lot of well done things in terms of the format and structure. I love how it transitions back and forth from this conversation with Kate to Peggy. We notice that she's taking a note. Mom, I met this wonderful boy on the train today. Then it switches back to Kate's apartment. And there's this great line. Where she's like, who's your favorite poet? And he's like, Shakespeare. It's like you can feel the pulse of Elizabethan life. It pounds with it. And it's just like this really, really intense conversation where you can tell that they're kind of gazing into each other's eyes. There's They're both kind of like, you know, slouching on the floor, right? Um, you'll notice that kind of like everyone else is kind of, you know, off doing something else. And they're like really sort of, you know, smiling at each other. The facial expressions, their charisma with each other. It's just really well done. And then we kind of transition to the next scene where Peggy's waiting at the hotel, right? Um, so I really, really like how this is sort of all integrated together. It's not like we've forgotten about Peggy yet, but let's really emphasize who Kate is as a character. Um, but I think you do feel that these characters really do have um, solid backstories, and you're invested in them and who they are and each of the different personalities that they embody. Back to your point, though, like with Indy and uh, Kate in the apartment, I think 
you really get that sense that they're getting close just because of the close-ups too. Um, you know, the filmmaking there. And I think it's really important as actors, you know, you see their faces. That's really the key thing in acting. Um, and they really sell it. Uh, so I think that was well done. Right. And I also like as well, this is something that comes up later, just a little detail. Indy also kind of mentions, so, you know, what does our poetry have to reflect now in the present day in the 20th century? And she's like the automobile age. And that actually becomes a poem that she writes at the poetry reading a little bit later in the episode. But interesting to see that connection that comes back a little bit later. Um, and again, I just think the nonchalance between them. And I don't know if this is potentially, I mean, you were talking about this at the beginning with Peggy. I'm not sure if this is unrealistic, but Indy does have a very strong relationship, you know, whether you want to call it, you know, uh, sort of a romantic relationship or not. Uh, he at least has sort of a friendship with all of these characters very, very quickly. Um, and I'm not sure if, you know, people think that's unrealistic or not. I mean, I thought it was very convincing, especially with Kate, most of all. I mean, you could see that these two really sort of had this sort of connection to each other through their sort of same intellectual interests. This whole conversation he had with Kate ended up, I guess, sabotaging himself because he missed his appointment with Peggy. And so now he's walking in the park. He's really miserable. Peggy doesn't know that um, that Indy's already sort of moved on. I mean, it's been like a day. Right. It's not very <laughs> realistic, but I guess that's how Indy is. He's on a spree. Though I have to say, I think that because you get those sequences where it cuts back to Peggy while he's talking with Kate, it reinforces your, I think, sympathy for these characters because they don't know that Indy is, I guess you could say, having an affair and you feel bad for them because you see how much they care for him. Yeah, and, you know, you bring up a really good point, actually, that I kind of want to talk about here, is that, you know, even though he lost Peggy, he gained Kate. And perhaps this is one of the reasons that, you know, Indy sort of has uh, sort of an issue here with, you know, latching on to three different women, is that he really doesn't let it go with Peggy. On the other hand, I guess you could say that, you know, he starts this relationship with Kate and Peggy has no idea that he's done that, right? So when they reunite at the Broadway show... It's, it's immediately sort of this, you know, reuniting, like, because they each were, you know, alone, right? They were both alone, and now they've kind of come together after meeting on the train. So the fact that he already found somebody else, right, I mean, that would have been disappointing to her, as much as that would have been the honest thing to say. So I think it's interesting how Indy, in a way, I think does forget about Peggy and moves on with Kate. But the fact that, you know, I think they both kind of came together so strongly at the beginning, how does that bond affect, you know, the fact that he almost feels forced to keep the relationship with both of them? How interesting is that, I think? But it's really sort of indie-centric in this episode. I mean, you're really kind of following his narrative. And we see Gershwin, I think, which is interesting. I really want to talk about this point of view in, uh, during the billiard scene. Um, but how Gershwin, I think, changes the narrative of this episode in a pretty dramatic way by sort of, you know finding this is a very comedic thing uh, for Indy to do, right? He never helps him in any way. I mean, he kind of suggests, like, can't you at least give one of them up, right? But he doesn't really say it with any sort of seriousness, right? I mean, he, you know, creates all these songs for crying out loud. So interesting how those dynamic changes as well. But one little thing that I wanted to mention, um, you'll notice, you know, after he's sort of sad and walking around in, I would assume that's Central Park, um, he finally comes back to Kate's apartment because he forgot his bag. And he offers to help uh, clean up the apartment after the party last night. And there's one really great exchange between them about sort of, I guess, this feeling of being misunderstood and the loneliness that both of them, I think, have, right? Um, we kind of see Kate say, oh, you know, the crowd last night, ah, they were kind of friends, I guess, right? But I mean, clearly she got so interested in Indy, right? So I mean, she probably didn't have anyone else that she was, you know, super interested in at the party. And then it's also interesting for Indy to think the same thing. And I wanted your take on this because... 
I've really been thinking about this ever since I rewatched this episode for today. Um, there's one sort of question that gets posed to Indy when Kate says, there's no one close. Do you have anybody like that? And he sort of stutters and he says, you know, I thought I did, but no, there's no one. And I'm curious, do you think he's talking about Peggy? Which was my initial reaction, because obviously it's this episode. Or is he mentioning somebody else? Perhaps Vicky? What's your take on that? I think he might be talking about Remy. Oh, really? Interesting. Because, like, you know, Remy is the only character that he was actually close to throughout the whole show. And, you know, they parted ways in Peacock's eye. And I think maybe he's just reflecting on that right there. Uh, so I think the most likely character here is actually um, Remy. And I was curious, you know, whether that's what she was implying, right? I mean, she said somebody close. And obviously, you know, they're still sort of like gazing into each other's eyes. So I was assuming it was supposed to be romantic at this point. Um, but I mean, that's what I think originally kind of led me to this different conclusion is because, you know, she says, do you have somebody close? And I'm like, well, you've met Peggy for like, what? five hours right there's no way that she's that close person in your life but then again indy does say like he gets way too close to people way too quickly um and he's done that a lot throughout the show so like he could be talking about peggy here right i'm just curious if he would have finished that thought with something more specific but again it leaves us to speculate about too many things <laughs> right uh, but now let's transition to the next scene uh when he is going to go meet Sidney bechet because he promised him to get him a job as a waiter in new york Yes, um, so he goes to this club, and it, it really does feel like a scene taken right out of Mystery of the Blues. And, of course, this is where you encounter George Gershwin for the first time. And I love this character so much throughout the whole episode. I mean, and I love his wit, too, because, um, you know, Indy ends up playing some of his, you know, soprano sax. And he's like, interesting sax you play. Have a cigar. And then Indy's like, no, no, I don't smoke. Do you eat? I eat. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I'm starving. Come, Mr. Saxman, let's eat. Yeah. I love that whole sequence. It really establishes that he's a witty character. And then throughout the episode, I think he takes a personal enjoyment in uh, in helping in Indy's charade, I guess. Yeah, you know, he's definitely such a witty character. And I love Gershwin, I think, in this episode so much. And I think I've, I've mentioned this before probably on this podcast, but what I think is fascinating about this show is Indy meets a lot of historical figures who are kind of similar to his age. I mean, Sidney Bechet, we could assume, was probably in his early 20s at this point. Same with Gershwin, I would say. Um, so Indy is definitely a little bit younger. Um, but I mean, it's not like, you know, he's meeting like Teddy Roosevelt, for example, right? I mean, this is a different dynamic here. And the fact that he's not a musician, which, you know, Gershwin asks him this, right? Uh, and the fact that he's just sort of able to kind of play along in their band for fun and still have this connection with them, I think is really interesting. And you talked about Mystery of the Blues right there. And what I think is fantastic is how cohesive uh, this transition is from one episode to the next. Um, you know, when these episodes aired internationally, of course, they had the dates on them. And Chicago was April and May 1920. And uh, Scandal was June and July 1920. So these are actually back to back. Obviously, we could assume during that time, Indy finished, uh, you know, his exams at University of Chicago and was still kind of working with Sidney Bechet and learning jazz. And, you know, to kind of think about where Indy is at the end of that episode, right, he's learning the blues, right? That's his first instance. But as you alluded to, which I think was a great theme that you picked out, Elijah, uh, from this episode, is that, you know, putting in the hard work and practicing music, that process never ends. And it's nice to see that Indy continued that off screen when we didn't get to see it. And then when he travels to New York, you know, still has this connection with Sidney Bechet, you know, and finally, obviously, we see, uh, you know, there's one promise I did keep, you know, I fixed your soprano sax for you, that whole thing, right? And then he's able to kind of come back and 
play music. He's really part of the group now. I mean, we see, obviously, he impresses Gershwin. I mean, the fact that he can impress Gershwin, how significant is that, right? And obviously, Goldie is very welcoming when he comes to the stage as well. So I like this kind of transition to keep Mystery of the Blues going. I don't think they overdid it, right? Because you didn't want Sidney Bechet in this whole episode. But for the five minutes he was in there, I loved the connection between these two 1920 episodes. And uh, the same thing happens in Hollywood Follies, too, when Gershwin appears at the beginning of it. So how about to connect all three of these episodes? That's really, really cool. Yeah, and I think it's kind of funny. It feels almost like the only character we left behind in Chicago is Elliot, you know? Because we're going <laughs> to see Hemingway later, too. Maybe for the best. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I do like the carrying over of these characters. It helps with the transitions, and I think George Lucas has the freedom to do that with this story. Yeah, absolutely. And probably that's one of the benefits of having uh, the re-edits, you know, because uh, they're all in chronological order now. So I guess just the grandeur and the sense of, you know, always going on a new adventure, I think, continues. Even if Indy's, you know, obviously at school, I mean, heck, we see that in Princeton. This guy's supposed to be studying for classes in high school, and he has this whole Edison mystery going on, right? So there's always an adventure, and the, just the sense of, um, I just think spontaneity in Indy's life and, and the cultural stuff that he ends up learning about is really, really, I think, fun to see. And I'm invested in it, certainly. Um, and, you know, it's interesting as well how uh, there's one quote that I kind of just touched on that I wanted to bring back up. Maybe you had something to say about this. When uh, Sidney says, you know, promises are about all we got, right? There's this whole kind of thing about how he's not going to get the waiter job uh, that he promised Indy. And I I'm curious how you read that because I was like, wait a second, if promises are all you got, how come Indy doesn't have the job, you know? Like, interesting, I guess there was some sort of, like, you know, he promised me, I promised him, and it just kind of got lost in the mix. Um, but, I mean, hey, Indy came all the way to New York for this job, and all he got in return was a soprano saxophone, which ended up getting him a different job because he got George Gershwin's attention. But I just thought that was kind of an interesting scene. I mean, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it does remind me a little bit of a Simon and Garfunkel lyric from The Boxer, where he's like, uh, well, I mean, the character in the song says... Um, I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles. Such are promises. All lies in jest. Uh, it's, it's, I like the poetry of that. And I guess the poetry sort of fits into the episode with Kate, of course. Um, but that's, I guess that's all I have to say on that quote there. And one thing I just kind of found interesting as well is how George and Indy, I mean, this is kind of similar with Peggy and Kate. And, you know, I guess it was kind of necessary to get the story going. But, I mean, he really, I mean, kind of befriends all these characters so quickly. Soprano sax and a jazz band? Oh, boy, I've never heard of that before, right? And then he goes to town and sort of, again, let's keep in mind, Gershwin was playing a set with Bechet. So everything that Indy performed was all improvisation, right? And so he kind of blew Gershwin away. And Indy even is surprised. He's like, you wrote that? He's like, sure enough, George Gershwin. Indiana Jones and the sax man, you know, that's some fine tune, right? Like that whole thing. So I really, really like the fact that they're each able to impress each other and it leads to a terrific scene uh, when they're at Dinty Moore's playing billiards. Yeah, I love this pool room sequence. Um, this is exactly the point in the episode where I realized that this episode was a musical. Um, and this is, I think, the first major musical number that we've had it, you know, we've had some music going on before this point. But um, I really love here, even in this one moment, it's a self-contained musical in the broader musical. I mean, you've got a lot of comedy going on, banter. My favorite thing, I think, is just uh, a whole dance number with the tap dancing, um, complete with hats and pool sticks that are just like the canes you would see twirled around. Um, and all of that style, it feels very much right out of the 1920s. And I love the choreography here because it feels spontaneous, 
but at the same time, it is just like a musical. And um, I really love the way Indy is trying to uh, specify his feelings. And people are like, oh, yeah, I know exactly how you're feeling. And they get it wrong, but it's a good musical number. And then he's like, no, that's not quite it. And then the next guy comes, and then it's a little closer to the mark, but it's not there yet. And I love this one quote in the sequence where um, Indy is like, okay, okay. Well, if it's all so great, why do I feel so miserable? And then this one guy who's been on the phone this whole time, is he, he's, he takes the phone from his ear and he's like, it's because she's nagged you, you poor sack, <laughs> and now you're a goner. Call you back. Yeah, that's a hilarious quote right there. Definitely one of the best uh, ones from this episode. And great point as well. I'd have to agree with you about what you said there. How this episode doesn't necessarily feel like a musical, but has a lot of those elements. I mean, you talk about sort of, you know, the Tin Pan Alley of the 1920s. I mean, these guys like Gershwin, we got Ted Lewis, right? Irving Berlin, they all kind of sing these songs. And this idea of connecting love and songwriting was a really, really big theme of the 20s. And yet I think Lucas was able to really involve this in such a natural way. We have live performances. We do have a true sort of like Broadway musical. And it doesn't sort of become bombastic or too much, right? Where it, you know, really kind of feels like a different step in another direction. It still follows the same structure of these typical young indie episodes. And I really, really have to congratulate him for that because I really liked having a couple of those elements. I mean, this scene in Dinty Moore's, I just think is absolutely hilarious. It's so fun. And it really, you know, I think enforces that atmospheric tone of the 1920s but then it goes back to just the traditional episode we don't need to hear this throughout the whole you know hour and a half that we're watching this right it's just enough and i think it's really really well done right um and to continue on with that i mean we see a couple of moments here where indy's you know kind of reminiscing about peggy and going back to what i was saying about kate's quote like do you have anyone close you notice here that indy says that what he has with Peggy wasn't really love. But it's interesting, you know, we see this idea of songwriting in the 20s, right? Cheer up, there's a million girls out there, right? You find the words, Indy, and I'll find the tune, right? And again, more of these quotes, like, a song is the only place you can put it, right? So all of this sort of really Gershwin-type stuff here, I think is really, really fantastic. And I love the piano, uh, and just sort of, again, the spontaneity that you said with the tap dancing and everything. Uh, the whole room kind of really gets behind him and really tries to understand his feelings and who he is and what he's going through, right? Um, and I think this is a really, really great example of a lot of the thematic elements in this episode that I really enjoy. Yeah, though I do really have to disagree with you there because I think that this is an Indiana Jones musical, or at least the closest you could get to having a musical in the genre with the character. Because, I mean, Indy doesn't do any of the singing here, but I feel like every other character around him does. Um, and, like, from straight from the pool sequence all the way to Gloria and Indy dancing, at the end of the episode, uh, right when you get the credits um, and the end sequence, and I think it was very intentionally done, it's a curtain that comes down and closes. So... This whole time, you've been watching Indy run a show, and then the curtains close on that and everything. But at the end of the episode, you realize that you've been watching a musical because the curtains on the actual episode closed, too. That's a really good point. Uh, so I think it's a meta-musical because you're seeing the musical and then, you know, that Indy's running. But at the same time, he's also in his own musical. Oh, that's a really good point. I didn't consider that. So a musical within a musical. 
uh, so to speak. I guess, you know, I just thought it was sort of Indio gets kind of his head smashed into a cake the end and it was sort of, you know, this grand uh, sort of finale. But I guess, like you were saying, you know, I think everything has a significance in this episode and just the detail and the format of everything. I still think I would disagree with you in the sense that uh, at least to me, it didn't feel like a musical. Um, perhaps I guess it did to you. And, 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 you know, that's totally fine, of course. I mean, maybe it kind of has a different effect on everybody. But I think to me, what was nice about it is I think it was a nice mix of those musical moments with sort of the traditional episodes that we've been, you know, so used to watching. And, you know, speaking of the format of this episode, I mean, we just had this whole scene about Peggy and Indy all of a sudden goes back to the apartment where Kate is. And, you know, Kate's like, oh, I was just thinking about you. And, and there's this whole scene between them, you know, where they kiss for the first time, of course. And again, reinforcing these ideas that both of them in some way, shape or form are still part of his life. Um, and I think that's a really, really nice way to set up his first day sort of at uh, George White Scandals. Yeah, so now we go to the theater, and this is when we're, we first meet Mac, who, as Indy says, is a slave driver. Um, and <laughs> I, I get that sense he might actually be, because he's just so angry the whole time. He tells Indy that he's an idiot, and of course Indy catches on and says, oh, yeah, he, I'm an idiot. Um, which is kind of funny to see because he kind of is an idiot in this episode. But it also reminds me of, you know, when he was with Aristotle in Travels with Father, and they were talking about an idiot as someone who, in the Greek sense, isn't interested in politics. I also love um, when he's talking with, um, with George here, and he's like, your girl, you mean you found her? That's great! <laughs> uh, well, no, actually, this is another one. Right. Another girl. Boy, you sure don't waste time. I just I love how Gershwin's involvement in Indy's love life slowly increases through the episode. And you see that right here. You know, I think it's interesting to have that sort of contradiction because, you know, a couple of scenes ago, back when they were at Dinty Moore's playing billiards, right, he obviously didn't know Kate existed yet. And so Indy's, you know, feeling all sad about Peggy and there's all the songwriting going on. He wants to help him with his problems. Right. Uh, you know. And uh, then, of course, when, you know, Kate gets brought up, right, he's he's just kind of adding to the farcical sort of implications of what Indy's going to do and doesn't try to stop him in any way. Um, what I really, really love is that Indy references um, that he actually worked uh, as part of a, a sort of musical or play, I guess you could say, uh, when he was in Barcelona with uh, Diaghilev and Scheherazade. Uh, which is actually interesting because that's not the only reference to that episode, which I will bring up a little bit later towards the end. But, uh, you know, I love what you talked about with the idiot thing, right? He's like, your job's to do all the idiot jobs only idiots want to do. And I love how this is the first sort of introduction of Bonzo the monkey, right? And Indy, you know, like sticks his tongue out at him, which I think is just so funny. And then finally, uh, you know, there's this great quote, which I think just summarizes Max's character so well. He's like, just remember, Jones, my name is God. And there's this, like, whole menacing personality about him that just adds a whole tension. <laughs> and there's only one God above me, and his name is Mr. White. Exactly. And there's this whole tension uh, between them uh, that adds another element, right? We're stacking on all of these elements in this episode, right? As if Indy already didn't have enough problems. Now he's got another one with Mac the Slave Driver, <laughs> uh, which actually adds some character development for Indy when he actually becomes a stage manager. Um, and yeah, and then we get introduced to George White, the man himself who's in charge of this, uh, as well as Schwartz, another very fun character. Yeah, I think Mr. White is um, kind of a haughty character, um, and he really plays to, as you'll see, what other people think if they have influence over him. For instance, J.J. Shiler, who of course ends up saving the play by, you know, throwing some money at it. 
I don't I don't think he's a great character in the sense like as like the best kind of person. Um, but he is a good character to watch in the show. Right. And I mean, yeah, I think he's just kind of he's pretty much a horrible person. I mean, we kind of see that come through in multiple instances. But I just have to say, like, I feel like everything that was done in this show just was just so spot on. I mean, we talked a little bit about this, you know, with Elliot and Ernest Hemingway uh, and, and Indy in the last episode. And I feel like the same thing comes up here with Schwartz, Mac, Jack White, Gershwin, like that entire stage crew. They're just really, really fun to watch. And the writing and the acting was so well done. Um, which, you know, we should mention, I mean, the, the casting directors for this show, uh, Janet Hershenson and Jane Jenkins, actually are very famous. They did the casting for Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, Harry Potter, Jurassic Park. Like, they are the casting directors. And so I think it's just really, really fun to see all of the acting in this episode because I think it's so on point with the theme of what they're trying to do here. And um, it's just, I think they had some really, really great actors and actresses come in and contribute to the show. Uh, but then to your point, now we go to the Park Avenue party, right? And this is the scene, uh, which, by the way, has a great transition. You'll notice Indy says he doesn't have clothes, and he says, now you have clothes. And then he talks about, you know, oh, I just still got to talk with my girl, right? And that was the quote that you just brought up. And then he says, well, bring her along. She'll love it. And a perfect transition to Kate's answer to that question at the apartment Oh my god, it sounds awful, right? <laughs> so I just find it really, really great how they did that transition perfectly as if Kate was almost answering Gershwin's question there. I like how when he goes back to his apartment, um, Kate really treats Indy as an adult. And she's like, oh, you're so old-fashioned. Uh, pretty funny. But I love this Park Avenue party um, because I think the choreography in this episode continues to be great. Um, and I hadn't noticed it before, but I love how the doorman keeps trying to take Indy's hat while he's talking to George Gershwin. Uh, and the doorman's going up, down, left, right, trying to pull the hat. But this is, of course, the introduction of Gloria. And Indy is instantly mesmerized. Um, and this is when you get the worst line in the whole series. And I guess I'll be the one to say it. She looks edible. Oh, oh, that's so weird. That's worse that, I than love the Star Wars prequel. <laughs> <laughs> I love George Gershon's response to that. Well, she should. Her old man owns the biggest meat packing plant in New Jersey. <laughs> I, I love that continued wit from George Gershwin. Oh my gosh. And he doesn't even laugh at it, too. He just nonchalantly says it as if he's like, she ought to, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's too good. He's too good. And I think this is also another example of how this episode is really on the brink of, if not a musical. Because um, there are so many sequences where the music and the drama in the scene are wholly connected, such as Indy dancing with Gloria while Gershwin and the band are playing, or the pool room sequence I said earlier. But I think it's really fitting that this episode should come right after Mystery of the Blues, you know? Two very musical episodes back-to-back, -back, very tied together, both with the characters and the plot. What a kind of perfect scenario to have these episodes back-to-back, because -back, they weren't actually originally aired that way. Mystery of the Blues and Scandal were split up, of course, so how about that, you know, kind of coming together? And, yeah, just to kind of respond to a couple of great points that you mentioned, obviously the first one, that quote, I hate the timing of it, I hate the enunciation of it, I hate the whole thing. Um, so that is like my biggest pet peeve. Uh, please never, ever say that to me ever again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on here. Uh, you know, I think there's a couple of great things about this scene. First of all, to your point, kind of, uh, back to the beginning when Kate mentions, uh, that he's going to the sort of Park Avenue party. I really like how she sort of has these very kind of 
untraditional definitions of a relationship. And I like how that's sort of added in here. I mean, we've seen characters like Gloria, for example, Julieta, obviously would be the first one that comes to mind for me, Matahari, right? Um, these very sort of traditional, I mean, you know, ideas of relationship, what most people would think a relationship is. And I like what they have. But, you know, this idea that, you know, obviously, oh, okay, so, you know, you know, my significant other is going to this poetry reading. Well, I have to go with her whether or not I want to. And she's like, no, we're going to go to our separate things. We're going to have a good time. We'll tell each other all about it, right? So kind of really interesting how, to me at least, Kate was quite farther apart from the other two women in the episode. And even then, Indy sort of finds it uh, to be very difficult to give one of them up, at least, if not any of them. Uh, so I like that added element to the show. But then, when Indy actually does go to the Park Avenue party, uh, I think I mentioned this in the character episode, uh, kind of interesting the foreshadowing to Rhapsody in Blue, when uh, George Gershwin says he wants to create a symphony uh, for car horns, uh, as Indy calls it. Uh, and right there's a sound of the city that he really wants to write. You know, he doesn't want this sort of, uh, you know, rendition of European music from 100 years ago, right? He wants American music. And he was, like, one of the most influential composers for, you know, 20th century American music. So very fitting in that way. Uh, but then also kind of contradictory when... Two minutes later, Indian Gloria danced to Rhapsody in Blues. I don't think he composed it that quickly. Uh, so a little bit unrealistic <laughs> there. Um, of course, some timing issues to figure out there. But then to your point, I mean, I love when he's... This is the first time when Indy actually finally is in denial of George Gershwin's sort of antics, uh, I guess you could say, in the sense that he finally realizes, you know what, I already have Kate, Right. Um, he's not necessarily going to the Park Avenue party even to meet someone. That's obviously not even his intention. So he kind of earns a little bit of sympathy there because that's he didn't go there to meet Gloria. It just kind of happened, right? Obviously, he's pretty much forgotten about Peggy at this point. I like how he finally realizes it's time for me to go to Kate, right? He's like, five minutes tops, then I go. And then he comes out of this elevator, which immediately sort of shows us the social class and wealth of this party. And he immediately walks into this amazing sort of like, ballroom right with Gloria coming down the stairs I mean just a magnificent scene on so many levels it almost feels like a scene from Gatsby right there in that sense though I have to say I feel a lot less sympathy for Indy when he's you know he's one moment he's like oh I gotta go back to Kate and then the next moment he's you know goggling over Gloria obviously Indy has some problems going after every any woman that he sees ever but I just think the theatrics of it do work really, really well. And I just love the sort of moment here when you see Gloria finally smile and, you know, they're twirling around and it's just, it's the scandal of 1920. I mean, this is like what we're here to see. We see this entire audience get behind them, right? Um, we see Gershwin, you know, having so much fun with the music. And I just think it's a really, really nice element to the episode, right? We see Gloria is finally the wealthy socialite who is, you know, uh, Indy is fixated by her beauty, and that's really the only reason she's here into the episode, right? He was originally going to be there for five minutes. Well, it turned into like five hours. There's this whole sort of bickering between Gershwin, and then immediately it just stops, right? And you talked about it there. The transition between Indy's personality and sort of his sympathy just goes right out the window when he does this. Right, I mean, the set design is fantastic, the 1920s atmosphere to it, the music, the dancing, the theatrics of it, the big band aspect of it, so cinematic, and then it finally 
wistfully transitions into Indy sort of getting out of this fancy car after he's had this night with Gloria um, and then finally goes back to Kate's apartment, right? We see him sort of, you know, put his hand through his hair. He's like, oh no, what have I done? Right, it's such an Anakin moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Indy going back to the apartment here, you can really tell how guilty he's feeling because he knows he just messed up and he's just made his situation you know, a lot more complicated. Um, so when he's talking with uh, with Kate here, I think even she can sort of pick up that something isn't quite right, but, you know, she isn't suspicious of him yet. What I think is funny, we talk about sort of laughing at Indy's expense. All of his lies and his BS is so fake. And it's funny. I mean, just the enunciation and delivery of what he says. How does Kate not pick up on any of this? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's just interesting. She seems very smart. How is she not understanding what's happening here? Exactly, right? It's just kind of interesting, right? I mean, this BS lie, right? Oh, it was boring, right? And I love how he, he finally sees a piece of Gloria's hair on his jacket and just like whips it off so fast. <laughs> <laughs> and now we finally transition to... The first of many instances in which Indy has to meet three people at 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock. This whole idea, uh, not at those specific times in this case. Um, but finally, he's going to have a lunch date with uh, uh, Kate at the Algonquin at 1 o'clock. And we see uh, sort of this kind of transition into him being worried about what's going to happen with Gloria. And then finally, we see some more uh, sort of rehearsal sequences back at the theater. Yeah, and... I mean, in this sequence, I, Mr. White is just too aggressive, honestly. Um, and Anne Pennington, who I think this is where we're introduced to her, she is simply terrible. I'd say that's all I have to say, but uh, she's insufferable. And also, I'd say she pretty much serves as the main antagonist in this episode to George Gershwin. Um, she is constantly deriding his work and enjoying, like you can see, she visually enjoys watching um gershwin get angry at her and she takes that personal satisfaction in it it's just terrible yeah i mean i think she's a horrible character but i mean i think the point is that she's supposed to be horrible i mean this is that's who she is and the fact of the matter is they have to change the whole program just because she has so much name recognition and that value to the show is what's going to keep them on the board and you talked about as well a little bit earlier in the episode how george white always just sort of seems to agree with anybody who sort of uh, disagrees with him or he can be swayed so easily, right? And she's like, no, it just won't do. And, you know, George White's like, no, no, thank you, honey. Right? Like, <laughs> I like what you said about her being an antagonist to Gershwin. That is absolutely hilarious. I didn't even consider that because really the antagonist in this entire episode is practically Indy um, or the monkey, however you want to see it. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, with the three girls, Indy is his own antagonist. And this is when sort of these original songs uh, to the show come up. She's wonderful too, right? When he sort of makes this stuff up. And it's interesting right here, and I'll mention this a little bit when we get to the end of the first half, but you'll notice here, Indy is laughing along with it. He's, he actually thinks this is funny. And the second time, the 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 2 one, he's not laughing. Interesting how that turning point uh, sort of changes there. And finally... Gloria now uh, is going to be adding another sort of uh, plan to his schedule for lunch when uh, Max says that her limo is blocking up half the damn street, right? And so he grabs the little lunchbox and immediately runs out to Gloria, right? He steals it from that uh, other guy sort of standing there. And uh, we now transition into this 
somewhat of a picnic that he has with Gloria. When Gloria pulls up with her fancy car and everything, I think this is the first instance where you're really revealed to Gloria's character. Um, she's a rich girl, and so she doesn't really have time to wait for what other people are doing. It's all about her and her wants. And my first impression here is Indy is doomed. I mean, he has double lunch dates now. How is he going to do this? And I guess my second impression is, why are there cars driving in the park? That doesn't make any sense to me, but I guess maybe it was a different era. Um, and like another thing is when, when Gloria sees the picnic lunch, she just laughs it off because it's like so tiny um, and she doesn't really see it as anything worthy. You know, she's a high society gal. She's not going to eat a tiny little lunch like that. She's going to take Indy to Shea Maurice. Um, and like throughout this whole sequence, she barely lets Indy speak. It's just her talking over the whole time. Um, and another bit of choreography I like, the car pulls up, you know, Kate's standing on the other side and Indy gets out on the right side while Kate's on the left. So when he says goodbye to Gloria, um, Kate doesn't see him. But if they had been switched seats uh, at any point, you know, even if when they got in, they were on the other side, this would have been over for Indy. Kate would have seen him. Gloria would have been there. It would have been ugly. Um, but I guess by sheer luck, that doesn't happen quite yet. And he gets out on the right side. Uh, but I think this might be a little bit of suspicion from Kate right here because she's like, some car. And I think that leads to one of the sort of, I guess, criticisms about this episode is there are way too many coincidences <laughs> that luck out for Indy in this one, uh, which I didn't even think about that one. That's actually hilarious. Like, yeah, I mean, pretty much if, you know, the driver had pulled up on the other side of the road, you know, they would have seen Gloria right there and you would have had to come up with some other excuse um, instead of I had to work late, uh, which is what he uses every time. Um, but really, really great analysis of Gloria's character. I didn't even really go that far to think about her as that type of person. I think you did a phenomenal job analyzing who she is in comparison to the other two. And to your point, I like what you said, which I didn't even pick up on, about how she sort of doesn't even let Indy talk. And the fact that she's so dominating over him which again, like we talk about sort of like the, the sort of hierarchies of the time, right? And the social status, right? Indy's obviously a male and we have Gloria here who, who obviously, obviously Indy only likes her for her beauty, but she really is kind of domineering over him. Interesting that dynamic changes here. Um, but to your point, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, you know, Indy still somehow likes Gloria, right? I mean, he brings this little picnic, which, I mean, yeah, it's kind of small. It's an apple and a sandwich. That's not, you know, enough for two people, but, you know, she really finds it too funny. And I think it just kind of enforces that same idea that you were talking about with the fact that, you know, they go to Shea Maurice and they have this whole elaborate lunch plan and that she doesn't really uh, feel cognizant of anyone else's schedule, right? She has to do everything her way and she has to manipulate Indy, right? Um, so, ooh, that actually leads me to an interesting point. Maybe the fact that she manipulates Indy in this way is kind of what sets him on this bad path of missing work and always having to be late and behind. Interesting if that sort of uh, ends up starting this here. Um, but I also love the language and sort of the, uh, I, I guess, quotes that uh, Gloria always says in this episode. It's very interesting how each character has sort of uh, an interesting personality. And for Gloria, uh, the one quote that she always says pretty much throughout the whole episode is, oh, isn't this perfectly divine? And it's kind of interesting why that's the quote that she always says, um, because while she thinks everything is perfect, in more ways than one, Indy is in quite a lot of trouble. And um, yeah, let's transition to the next scene with the Algonquin Roundtable, who I have to just immediately say, 
Uh, I did not know much about them at all, and it was actually through the historical documentaries on the DVD set where I actually kind of became very interested in this topic uh, when I sort of decided to rewatch this episode. Really, really cool that Indy actually comes in contact with this group of people uh, during the time. Yeah, I mean, I love this whole Algonquin Hotel sequence. I'll, I'll watch that documentary, um, but I love how this scene, it's just the short biting quotes that you would read from critics in the newspaper, but instead it's banter around the round table. Um, and I like how they call it the round table too. It reminds me of King Arthur. And I like how Indy isn't just a passive uh, viewer. He's a participant here. One of the things that I like is you talked about Indy sort of not being sort of this passive voice or just sort of kind of sitting off to the side. I think that's another reason why we see his relationship with Kate actually somewhat successful because he does actually seem interested in what she's interested in. It's not like Gloria where, you know, she's, you know, kind of worried about herself. Like, I have shopping to do. And I'm just like, shut up. Like, <laughs> like the most sort of stereotypical wealthy response you could have gotten. Whereas here, we do see Indy actually connecting with the Algonquin Round Table and these historical figures. So, again, I really love as well the intellect, the dialogue, really well written, which is ironic because, of course, you know, uh, these are critics, writers, you know, uh, playwrights, uh, poets, right? Um, and that was sort of the thing that sort of brought these, uh, everybody together here. Um, and there's an amazing conversation too. So many different personalities between everybody at the table, which I really like. Um, and I love as well, uh, kind of a cool connection to the old indie bookend that's thrown in here. Funny how Indy says, looks like you've written your notices already, which is very similar to the old indie bookend for the second half of the episode when he comes in and he's like, you've already written this, you know, whole sort of review without even seeing, you know, how much hard work they've put in. And then of course, towards the end of the episode, old indie is like, you know, they should all quit. This is a horrible <laughs> show. And like, it's a great <laughs> sort of old indie moment there. I'm forgetting the exact quote off the top of my head, but, and then I really, really love when Indy sort of makes a joke about the book and then Dorothy Parker chimes in, welcome to the round table, Indiana Jones. And I think I mentioned this in the character episode, but I love the way that she says that. Uh, really, really cool uh, how he almost becomes part of the round table with that sort of uh, uh, connection there. Back to what you were saying there, I think that the way they write the reviews before they've actually seen the material speaks to how cocky they are. And I think that they have some of that overconfidence that, you know, Indy starts with at the beginning of the episode, which I think is a little bit of a detriment to them. But to your point, I mean, I guess that is true when you think about it, because when they actually get to the show, right, Hemingway is telling them to be quiet as they already have, like, they're like, this is the act one finale, right? Like they already have these written sort of um, prejudices against the show. So that's a really great point, you know, maybe being a little too cocky about uh, what they're doing. And so let's transition into the next sequence, which is, again, another tap audition uh, where we obviously see uh, Indy back at the theater. And I love right when he gets there, uh, we see Mac, who, you know, of course, is, has his flask of whiskey, as he always does. And I love how Indy responds, can I get you a cup of coffee? And he's like, you know, one drink never hurt anybody. And sort of <laughs> this whole <laughs> sort of prelude to what ends up happening to the end of uh, sort of the episode there uh, when he ends up uh, of course, uh, basically lying drunk in his office so he can't uh, actually work on the show. And it's uh, funny, just this one random thing I noticed, when Mac comes up to him originally, you notice Indy is holding all these props. He's like, you know, I went to check the props like you told me. And he's holding this, like, rubber chicken that he immediately, like, hides and puts down when he asks <laughs> him. I thought that was pretty funny. 
I love how this episode is constantly, you know, setting something up and then it pays off later in the episode. Um, I think the biggest and most blatant use of this is, um, you know, we'll get to it soon, where Indy gets all these gifts from the three women and then he all re-gifts them. And then that's going to ultimately seal his doom. But um, yeah, I think that just, just that filmmaking aspect is really well done here. Now, also in this scene, this is when Indy reunites with Peggy because she's at the audition and obviously he forgot that she would be coming here and trying to get into one of these shows. Um, but when he sees her, this is a nice, I think, both cute but also sad scene because, you know, Peggy is oblivious to the fact that now Indy is dating two other women. And so when she sees him again, um, she just thinks, oh, I've been missing him. He's been missing me. It's so good to be back with him. Uh, but like you see in those close-ups when Indy hugs her that like, oh, he's like, oh crap, now I have three girls. And so, yeah, it's really, this is really where Indy, he just sinks deeper and deeper into his own, um, I guess his own troubles that he's created for himself. And I think it's interesting too, to consider these last couple of scenes that we've been looking at where we don't really see Indy in this sort of frantic, you know, problematic situation. Yes, he's dating two women. Right. But he's only seen Gloria once at this point. Right. It was at the uh, Park Avenue party. And then, well, I guess twice now uh, when he had at the picnic with her. Right. So at this point, yeah, we see Indy going into some, you know, pretty bad territory here. But I don't think at least when I viewed the scene before Peggy came up, I didn't see him in a very troublesome situation yet. I think it was building up to that. But when Peggy originally returns, yeah, now we've got some issues here, right? And one little thing I wanted to mention, uh, kind of maybe a continuity error. You'll remember way at the beginning of the episode, what, two minutes in, uh, when Peggy says that she's going to audition uh, for a Broadway show, she says that she's not a dancer because she doesn't intend to display herself, yet she has a tap audition here, and she's not actually singing. Uh, so I'm curious as to what happened there with that contradiction, because, uh, again, going back to the Algonquin Round Table, one of the people at the Round Table there talks about how Ziegfeld glorifies the American girl and, you know, all this sort of sexism that happened during the time. And, of course, we hear that Peggy doesn't want to participate in any of that. So kind of interesting how that ends up uh, sort of leading to her becoming a dancer. Interesting. Yeah, and obviously in the audition, she doesn't look like she's doing very well with the dancing, because, like she said, she's not a dancer. Um, but I think... From her perspective, she might be just trying to get into the show any way she can. And if she has to try to dance because there's not a singing part available for her, she'll do that because ultimately that's her priority, I think. Yeah, and it's really interesting how this evolves into this next scene with Gershwin, right? When we see this as the, I think, epitome of the turning point for this episode. Indy's like, what have I got myself into? And Gershwin's like, every man's dream. <laughs> and we see... Indy is no longer laughing. He's no longer joking around with Gershwin. He's no longer, you know, excited about the prospect of sort of having Gloria and Kate in his life. Obviously, he knows he screwed up a little bit. And here we see now kind of the stress that's sort of weighing on him at this point that this is going to end badly because now he has three dinners, one at six, eight, and ten, right? And this is kind of what was planned in a scene right before this when Indy is talking to Kate on the phone Peggy passes and he's like, okay, that sounds wonderful, darling. And like says it to her and through the phone sort of simultaneously, which I just think is hilarious. And I do think this is a really, really great point in which we see this character development turn for Indy. And this leads me to one point that I want to make is that, you know, I think one of the things that was so well done about this episode is Indy knows he screwed up. 
right? And especially for our prior history within Young Indy, where we've seen this character development for Indy, we know deep down he is a good guy, right? And we know that he has screwed up. We know he's done the wrong thing. And even he himself knows that. It would be different if he was just sort of, you know, this kind of stereotypical sexist guy who would sort of conform to what Gershwin said, like, this is every man's dream and he just sort of had fun with it. But he knows he's done something wrong. And I'm not trying to defend Indy's actions in this episode, but we do see Indy screwing up. We know this isn't who he is. And it makes it fun to watch because we still do laugh at Indy's expense to some extent, but we know who he is as a person and we know that what he truly has done is his fault, but he didn't intend for it to happen originally. Yeah, he's not a despicable character like Anne Pennington or anything. Uh, you can sympathize with his plight, despite the fact that it is all of his own making. Um, and this is where the tempo for Indy is really picking up, um, where he's trying to juggle these three relationships. There's no time to spare. Um, and, you know, now he's going to go on these three dinner dates He's going to get stuffed. I mean, you're not you and you're hungry, right? At least that seems to be what Peggy thinks. And so she gets him these, I think, corn dogs, right? I mean, now when you get to Kate's apartment from after that, after the, him eating with Peggy, Indy is like a little kid. He's trying to hide his food under the table, <laughs> you know? He's got this steak that's like way too overdone. And Kate's upset with him, but she's a mature woman. And she's like, oh, well, he was at work. I understand. I shouldn't be angry with him. I'll make him something nice. And so she goes to all this trouble to do that. Meanwhile, Indy's cheating on her and he's eating all this other food. So he's stuffed. He doesn't even want the kindness that she's given him with the whole pasta thing. Nice observation there. I mean, that's kind of interesting, you know, when you talk about the fact that almost Indy now kind of reverse of what happens with Gloria and Indy, right? Now he doesn't really actually uh, care about her kindness and all the hard work that she put in to make this huge dinner, right? Because she believes that he was actually working late. Uh, so nice observation there. Um, and going back just a little bit, one thing that I noticed uh, that I've never noticed before uh, is kind of a mini Star Wars reference here. Uh, we see that uh mac uh is like where are you going jones right i love how he yells jones by the way it's like 10 times angrier than belloc would ever say it uh but <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious and um he's like you know i want you to inventory the new costumes and he's like get to work before i light a real fire under your tail and you'll notice indy right there mutters i've got a bad feeling and then Matt comes in and yells, Jones! <laughs> and Gershwin just kind of mutters, stay out of trouble, right? So uh, kind of funny to add that little Star Wars reference. And then uh, transitioning to the next scene with Peggy, again, we have this theme coming up again about Indy sort of being this big city masher, right? We see sort of the cook there. She sort of says, that's what they all say, right? You know, he had to work late. And what I love is so funny is when Indy finally shows up, you know, he's like rushing to the stand, like comes crashing in. He says, oh, you know, I got to get back to the theater. You know, you know, Mac, he's a slave driver. I have to work late. And, you know, Peggy's like, I understand. And if you look very closely, you'll notice great acting by whoever this extra was as sort of this cook. She rolls her eyes at Indy, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> which is so <laughs> funny. And then when he goes to Kate's apartment, how about another BS lie from Indy, right? I mean, he obviously comes up and we see, I love how the smoke is pouring out of the apartment, by the way. She's just sitting on the floor, just like staring at him. How funny is that? And then he kind of walks in, um, telephones are unfamiliar to you. And he's like, the phones were out. I'm sorry. I'm like, every phone was out. Like <laughs> what a horrible excuse that is. Um, and then of course we have this very, very, very well done beef. Love the acting here. Uh, and again, of course we see this tension that keeps building up. And now I think this is really when we start to laugh at Indy's expense. 
Right. And I mean, I mean, if you had been working late, you would need a whole pot of pasta to recuperate from that. And that's what I think Kate is thinking. Uh, but of course, you know, he's lying. So that's not at all what he needs. Um, but now we go to dinner with Gloria. And I mean, at this point in the episode, I think I just want the house of cards to fall down already. It's too much to bear. This is what this is the thing about the episode that makes it hard for, to watch for me, just because of like, the terror of it all, you know, you know, this is going to bite Indy in the butt. It's just terrible. So much cringe. But anyway, you know, when Gloria sees Indy at the other end of this crazy long table, um, she's like, oh, look at you. You don't feel well. Maybe you need some help. The last thing Indy needs is help eating. I swear, <laughs> he's going crazy in his head. He just needs to go home and sleep off all this food he's taken in. Yeah, and <laughs> I think what's just so funny about this scene is it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, right? I mean, let's think back to, like, the first dinner that he has with Peggy, where he's, like, shoving three chili dogs in his mouth, right? You would have rationed that food out there, and he really doesn't, and just kind of eats so much, and then finally goes to Gloria's, um, which, again, I mean, that long table, I just think, is so funny, right? We see, obviously, this contradiction here, where they're at both ends of the table. I, I definitely think we could get very philosophical about what that means in terms of their sort of social hierarchy here. But, you know, she asks, did you have lunch today? And Indy's like, no. And she's like, three meals a day is very, very important. And I'm like, that's the least of Indy's problems right now. <laughs> <laughs> he does not need to eat anymore. Uh, so interesting how, like, this misunderstanding, misrecognition, all the lies between them lead to all these other things that just happen, right? I mean, I love what you said, how it's, like, almost unbearable to watch this episode and rewatch it. I still find myself cringing, like, putting my forehead up to my hand, like, Oh, God, why did you do that again? Like, those types of, like, reactions from the audience, I feel like are true because things just build so rapidly, and you as the audience have a different understanding of what's going on within the diegesis. It's not the same, and it's really well done how it's set up. Now we go back to the theater, and we have here a cake tower, which is having some mechanical issues, and this is yet again another example of foreshadowing in this episode, which it will come back up again later. And um, another thing in this scene, this is Anne continuing to delight in Gershwin's anger. Um, she's really a bully to him, which I find very distasteful. This is when Mr. White calls Schwartz over uh, about their financial troubles. And this is when we find out that they actually need $20,000 to put the show on. And while they're having this conversation, these close-ups of Mr. White and Mr. Schwartz, they make me feel very uncomfortable. They look sweaty. And it's terrible, man. It's awful. Um, but... As we'll eventually see, it'll be Gloria who saves the show. Yeah, and one interesting observation about that scene, actually, is you'll notice uh, when Mr. White uh, calls over Schwartz, it's the first time he actually does that, because usually it's Sw Schwartz who goes over to Mr. White, and Mr. White's like, Schwartz, you're fired. Interesting that he calls him over, and he's still on staff working there. I think it's so funny, this dynamic between them. And just the quick and dry humor is so funny between these guys. And we just talked about this a little bit earlier, like... I don't think, at least to my knowledge, that either of these two actors are very famous. And they're so enthusiastic about creating a character and creating an environment and creating a certain type of camaraderie between these two characters. And it's interesting just how they always have this back and forth between each other. It's really, really fun to watch. And this is kind of nice to think about the foreshadowing that came up earlier in the episode when Schwartz was trying to get Mr. White to sign all these documents, and the fact that he didn't sign them allowed Ziegfeld to go and hire all their backers away, and now they need $20,000 to get the show back on its feet. And Schwartz warned him about this. He even says it to Mr. White. So I like as well how Mr. White 
kind of is falling off. Like, he is almost creating all these problems himself, right? And he is so... He doesn't think for himself, ever. He just kind of thinks that all the problems that his show has are due to other people. And he just listens to others' opinions without making them himself. There's one that's really funny, I have to admit, where, you know, they're obviously seeing this, you know, uh, new girl audition for the number. It's not Peggy, but somebody else. And, you know, Mr. White immediately asks, Anne, Anne, what do you think of this kid? And she's like, not much. And he's like, yeah, you're right, she stinks. Okay, number's off. Like, <laughs> you know, like, just that quick response where, like, you know, he asks for her opinion and then within a millisecond immediately agrees with it. And then one other thing that's really interesting, which you probably picked up on because we were talking about this earlier in the episode, the format and how they did this. I like how they transition directly between these three scenes between Peggy, Kate, and Gloria um, and all of their reactions to the show. Yeah, and that's another thing because how quickly that goes, it shows that the tempo of him and these three girls is increasing. And I like how this shows, you know, Gloria has the benefits of wealth, and so, so she's able to save the show. However, just like everything else in that episode, this is going to have repercussions for Indy and, you know, everything else going on because everything in here is so well set up, everything pays off. Um, and so now we get this backstage tour, um, and Gloria is there, Peggy is there, and so it's getting harder and harder for Indy to keep the three of them apart. It feels like all three of them are closing in on Indy and he has nowhere to go. And I like this one line from Gloria's dad, J.J. Uh, Shiler. He says, so this is show business. Um, and that's funny because I like the quote for its double meaning because Indy not only is, you know, doing show business in the show, but he's also putting on a show for all three of these girls at once, um, which is quite the act, I would say, trying to hold it all together. Yeah, that's a really great point. I mean, I love your analysis kind of reading into this. Uh, I love getting so specific about these episodes. So that is really cool, uh, that observation there. And, you know, to your point, I think it's really interesting how this scene, really, I think we see the ascension of Gloria as a pivotal character. Because if you really think about it, uh, the only reason Gloria was there is because, you know, uh, Indy was sort of entranced by her beauty, right? I mean, there was really no other reason that he needed to date Gloria. I mean, Kate, obviously, he's living at her house, right? And obviously, we see that their intellectual bond is pretty strong. Peggy, obviously, is a little bit more sentimental because they met on the train, they got reunited, right? And obviously, they're going to be working together, so they can't break that up, right? So now, finally, when her father becomes the backer, now he's really, like you said, he's really in a trap. He has nowhere to go. And I like your analogy there about sort of how every step that he takes with all three of these women in this sort of production that he's putting on for them actually leads to even more chaos to when on the night of the actual production, all three of them are in the same room. And now he really has to keep all three of them there. And so now we transition into these next three scenes, which are key to each other. Uh, so what you're having here is at the poetry reading, um, Kate hides none of her feelings for Indy. She writes this really nice poem for him, uh, which he's going... That's the one thing he takes. That's her gift to him. And then the dinner with Gloria. Gloria gives Indy her watch. And then when Indy goes um, with Peggy and Gershwin to the Horseshoe Lounge, another bit of repetition right there, um, Peggy gives Indy her grandma's handkerchief. So now Indy has all three of these items from all of them. And uh, he's about to screw it all up by the way he carelessly... Uh, re-gifts each of these very meaningful things that have been given to him. And it's really poignant how there's been so much thought and care put into all of these uh, gifts for Indy, and then he has so little care about them and about how he re-gifts each of them. Like, for instance, 
um, when Indy uh, re-gifts Peggy's handkerchief to Kate, it's just like, you know, an afterthought, you know, he spills the wine and then he just like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. And he just pulls it out and gives it to her. He doesn't even think about it. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things. I mean, how about a paradox? The fact that like, you know, again, we see Indy sort of being wrapped up in this whole sort of trap between these three women. And the fact is that like he can't get himself out of it and he's just sort of careless about it. So, I mean, definitely, I think this is an episode where you can get a little bit more uh, sort of upset at Indy in, in some respects, as much as we laugh with him and, and he's a great character. Uh, he definitely does a, a lot of wrong things in this episode. And, you know, going back to kind of these scenes here that you were talking about, again, I love the way that they're structuring these. It goes from one girl to the next. And we see after Gloria is finally solidified as sort of one of the love interests here, uh, that's when it leads to these three items. And us as an audience, right, I mean, it's not super, you know, suspenseful, obviously, because we obviously know, you know, they show close-ups of all these, you know, items, and we see where they're kind of being transported here. But to your point, I mean, we see during one of my favorite scenes in, in the episode, which is uh, the poetry reading, which, I mean, how about the fantastic atmospheric tone of the 20s? I love her apartment, right? It's so dark, and dust there's candles everywhere right i just love the outfits everyone's in that really kind of evoke the 20s which i guess i should mention i haven't talked about this yet uh very similar to what happened in mystery of the blues like less than one percent of this was actually shot in new york um and pretty miraculously almost everything here was a set um or was like a small building and then they added a matte painting behind so there's one shot i can't remember the time code i should have written it down but with like a sunset in the background that was a matte painting um, there's a couple of like tall buildings next to sort of a more just general large building. That was a matte painting. Um, there's even a bad use of stock footage towards the beginning before the Horseshoe Lounge. That was it. Uh, the Horseshoe Lounge itself, when Indy enters it, that was a set. So like pretty much all of this is like literally just a set. And I still think to some extent you feel the grandeur of the 20s in New York at this time. Yeah, I think that uh, really speaks to the magic of filmmaking, how you're able to take a time period that is long gone and recreate it, not even filming in the same location or the same time period, but you're able to make this authentic feeling um, that the viewer can enjoy. I think that's just really well done. And moving on to the pool room, I like how we come back to that because we keep returning to these locations, reinforcing the transformation that has happened from the start to the end here. Um, because like, for instance, at the pool room, the whole tone is different. You know, you're missing the crowd. It's not so much of the levity as it was before. Um, and you know how Indy was happy when he was in the pool room the first time talking about his feelings. Now he's just lying on the table, you know, barely holding together. And, you know, Gershwin's sort of like making fun of him in a little bit. Uh, it's just such a tone change. And I really like how you can clearly see that contrasted between the same location, but with such different context. Nice detail there. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even pick up on that, really. I mean, the fact that they do go back to the same sort of uh, place to play billiards. But yeah, it's like a totally different environment. And like, it's sort of this idea of like Indy in this way, sort of setting up his relationship with the pool balls. You'll notice he's got like three of them set up there and he's hitting them all in to the pockets, trying to sort of choose, oh, which one do I have to give up now? So I do like the the musical songwriting again comes back, right? He knows he screwed up. And this time Gershwin attempts to help. He's like, can't you at least give one of them up? And this is what I was talking about just a second ago. Now they're all sort of locked in this position. Who is he really going to get rid of? And you sort of feel for Indy as much as he set himself up in this position. But let's transition back to the Algonquin Round Table, which has 
a hilarious transition. I don't remember what this character's name is, but I love how he says, I hear you're in serious trouble, Mr. Jones. And like, <laughs> I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love that too. I mean, he thinks he's been found out right there, but of course that hasn't happened quite yet. Um, but now let's move on to the theater. Um, and, you know, Bonzo the monkey's about to cause a lot of trouble. Um, Indy gives Gloria's watch to Peggy, and he's re-gifted the second gift, and he's about to do it with the third this transitions into terrific acting from uh, Sean Patrick Flannery here. When there's a phone call, obviously Indy's living here now, so he picks up the phone, and it's Gloria. And he's like, how did you get this number? And she's like, I'm your boss, remember? Again, sort of more like social status there, kind of kind of coming through. And so she kind of makes up all this BS, which on the one hand, I was upset at her, but Indy's doing the same thing. So it really doesn't matter at this point. It's just crossing out and canceling <laughs> out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... We see, you know, she makes up this whole excuse that she's all alone, which is funny because, like, one of these sort of, like, I guess, butler there, like, comes over with some, like, coffee or whatever, like, right when she's on the phone. And I love how uh, Indy responds so quickly. He's like, I'm too tired. I can't. (laughs) 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 Just move on to the next thing. Just like, we know you've screwed up. We know everyone's going to find out. Just just get to it by this point. Um, And so, yeah, finally... Uh, we see Indy spends the night with Gloria. And how about this hilarious scene when he's so tired? I mean, you kind of feel for Indy because he's just working so hard to run back and forth all across town. Um, you'll notice that he falls asleep and starts snoring after this whole sort of scene when he's like making out with like Gloria here. Um, and he's like, no, 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 no. And he's like, (laughs) (laughs) when he sort of makes up this whole thing. And finally, again, you talked about sort of like using things that have come up in his other relationships as another sort of, uh, key to how everyone's going to find out about this. Well, he then uses and recites Kate's poem as an original that he supposedly was writing for her. Right. And when when he gets that phone call from Gloria at Kate's apartment, she is now holding a position of power over him. Uh, She's like, you have to. I'm your boss. Um, You know, she's not at all thinking about Indy's needs. She's thinking about what she wants from him. And so when uh, when Indy's falling asleep and I love that bass cue uh, that perfectly matches the moment Gloria realizes Indy's falling asleep. Um, and so when Indy tries to save himself by reciting that poem for Gloria, now he has finally sealed his doom. He has given away all three of these gifts to the other person, and this is ultimately going to be what brings him down. And I, I think Indy knows that he sort of pauses, but then he continues because he knows he can't go back from that, but he's only made his position worse. Oh, wow. Really interesting detail. I didn't pick up on that. Uh, But yeah, to your point, I mean, like, it transitions perfectly into the next scene when he gets flowers from Gloria. Two seconds later, literally re-gifts them to Peggy. Uh, So, I mean, it just kind of builds off of that uh, sort of dynamic there. And uh, we finally see sort of the next scene here when George White is furious uh, with sort of the progress that they all have with the show, because we now see that it's pretty much turning into a train wreck. And so there's this great montage when they have this huge rehearsal to try to put in a ton of work uh, to finally perfect the show with 24 hours left, you know, and then it transitions to a scene, which is fantastic, by the way. I love how there's like all these scenes and immediately transitions to somebody sweeping the stage and you see his silhouette like on the back uh, curtain there. And then, you know, Gershwin's like, you know, in a couple hours will either be a big hit or out of a job and we finally realize that uh indy turns 21 today uh quite an unceremonious birthday if we're comparing it to what happened in petrograd uh for his 18th birthday 
Uh, but yeah, it finally leads into the opening night on July 1st of the Scandal of 1920. Yeah, and funny you should mention that guy sweeping because I wrote that down too. I really like that shot. Um, I think it's just artistically well done uh, with him and his shadow paralleled. Um, but I like also that establishing shot on the, um, you know, the beginning of the show night where you see the balcony because I think it has some strong parallels to the Scheherazade episode. Uh, you know, when Indy was working as a spy, and now he's running the theater, so he's he's kind of moved up in his theater experience here, in a way, but I also like how we have Hemingway back. I mean, I think it's also, you know, I mentioned it earlier, it's funny how we have almost the whole cast from Mystery of the Blues coming over to uh, Scandal, and also I love, oh, I have to say, I love the sound of the orchestra tuning. I mean, it's been so long since I've been to a concert now, and it, it makes me very nostalgic. That's funny. I actually wrote down the same thing in my notes here. I was like, tuning the orchestra, mention that for Elijah. <laughs> and I'm nice that uh, you noticed it as well. I really, really like that touch and sort of the post-production sound there. Because again, you know, uh, when they're creating this musical, they had to add stuff in after the fact, because obviously uh, we didn't have any live music being performed um, during the actual musical. I mean, of course, there was in the diegesis, but we didn't hear that music. It was added as the soundtrack. So to add the little tuning at the beginning was really, really nice. Um, but then, you know, one kind of interesting thing, I mean, you just talked about how it has a uh, similar feel to the Scheherazade episode. That's because this is the exact same theater that they used in that episode, uh, which is, I think, a really, really cool touch to the uh, to the episode. Yeah, and I've got to say, you have to love the way this episode builds tension. And like, for instance, here, it quickly touches on all of the uh, the main characters and it shows their faces and it really puts the pressure on Indy here. And one one detail in that that I like is I love how Mr. Schwartz is praying at the beginning. It's like really funny. And it's also really impressive to see Indy run the theater because in some ways I think, it, you know, he's making it up as he goes. And I know we use that quote a lot, um, but at the same time, he feels sort of actually in character here uh and like people who don't watch young indy and they might watch this episode i think one thing that would feel in character for him is when indy's swinging on the rope backstage and uh, you know chasing down this monkey and i also love like in this sequence i like how it clearly depicts the nautical or origins of these stage mechanics it's just like a ship's rigging uh, the way they're holding up those curtains like it's a sail on that spar there and all these lines that are belayed everywhere yeah, and to your point, you know, I think it's really interesting how they uh, kind of shoot this uh, sort of episode. I mean, you touched on this a little bit earlier, like they're literally shooting Indy and the rest of the cast, you know, sort of backstage. I mean, how paradoxical is that, you know, uh, really kind of cool how they put all that together. I mean, it really seems flawless. And then showing actually, you know, the process behind the stage of what they were doing. Um, and another thing you mentioned that I like is how they sort of touch on every all three of the girls uh, sort of. Uh, involvement within the theater they all kind of collide here right Peggy comes to thank Indy for the flowers and then Kate shows up somehow gets backstage and uh, tells him that uh, she's reviewing the show because their editor went sick um, and then Gloria comes back of course and JJ Shiler says this is going to be a night to remember which <laughs> is a great quote there and then we finally see you know, Mac, I mean, we this was alluded to very, very earlier, is literally drunk as hell. And I love how there was a note uh, given on the booze uh, from Ziegfeld. <laughs> so Ziegfeld knew that Mac was like such a drunk and sent him uh, all of this liquor uh, purposely to make the show kind of go in shambles. Interesting that we never see Ziegfeld because he's clearly the antagonist for George White here. Um, and yeah, Indy is running this show and 
funny quote here as well when Indy kind of gets this ascension to being the stage manager. You notice George White says, you know, if you don't do a good job, I'll murder you. And then I love how Gershwin responds. Another funny witty quote from him. Let's knock him dead. (laughs) (laughs) What a great quote there. Um, But yeah, and then again, the return of Hemingway. How fun to have him in the audience with all the members of the Algonquin Roundtable. And yeah, it's a play within a movie. Just a really, really fun idea. Uh, As we start the show, you know, he's saying his prayers. And uh, let's look at the first act of this show now. That would be kind of interesting to actually take a look at sort of the original performance of the Scandal 1920 and compare it to what was depicted in the episode. That could be really, really fascinating. Um, and I think it's interesting to see this juxtaposition when, for some reason, the costumes disappear. Uh, we're not exactly sure why, but they have to use their feathers to sort of basically cover them as clothes. And I think it's a nice sort of contrast to what everyone at the Algonquin Round Table was saying before about how Ziegfeld glorifies the American girl, uh, but Jack White merely undresses her. Uh, so it's funny, I think, that that actually turns out to be true in sort of uh, an ironic way. Um, yeah, we obviously see that pretty much this entire show ends up being improv. I mean, nothing here ends up being planned uh, according to uh, what originally was supposed to happen. I mean, we see Anne Pennington gets stuck in a dressing room. How about another reference uh, to Barcelona when Indy puts Nadia in the dressing room and gets and she, you know, gets stuck in the closet there. So that's funny. But yeah, I'm not a huge fan of this scene uh, when Anne Pennington's singing. I mean, it's just kind of like, it's just bad singing. And then we see this hilarious scene with this monkey extravaganza, which is happening above this uh, sort of entire show. And my first question is, why is the monkey even in the episode in the first place? I mean, I'm curious to hear your sort of breakdown of this scene here. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I don't recall seeing the monkey in the show, like the actual act. Um, And I don't know if that was just glossed over because of the montage that we got or not. Um, but it does sort of serve as the antagonist to Indy here. I think it's kind of funny because there's so much improv going on, yet the only time we hear that something might have gone wrong and not according to plan is right towards the finale. Um, And the rest of the time, they don't actually notice it. I mean, besides, of course, the falling pillar and wrench, but, you know, we won't talk about that. Moving on to the finale here, it's really what ties it up together. And what I really love about it is that it's like, very it's a shift in tone from the rest of the show it's a lot more slow and gershwin finally gets to perform his piece the way he wants it to be performed like you know it cuts to kate and the other characters and they're all really invested in it um and i think that the you know you're meant to see it as oh they're all thinking of indy while peggy's singing and peggy actually looks at indy uh backstage and that sort of inspires her um but my only gripes with it is that like you know right before they go on they said that the orchestra doesn't have the music, but when she, you know, when Peggy is singing and then the orchestra joins in, I'm like, isn't there some sort of reason that that wouldn't be possible? I don't know. Because, like, a whole orchestra can't just improv it. Maybe they found it somewhere, but it just it seemed like a little inconsistency there. Yeah, and it's really funny, too. I mean, just the theatrics of this. I mean, you talk about the comedic farce of this episode. I don't know how Indy manages to not ruin the show. I mean, you'll notice like five different background map paintings that are actually in the show get like torn apart and come up. The pillar comes down and somehow doesn't break. There's a wrench that falls and Indy still is hanging on to all of these ropes and pulleys 
while Bonzo the monkey, who has a tuxedo, which I just think is so funny, uh, he's got like this whole tuxedo on, so you think he's gonna be like, I don't know, some magic element of the show, never appears, nor is there actually any finality with Bonzo. Um, and to your point, you know, I, I love how, again, we sort of have the spontaneity of this coming up. The turntable is busted, they've got a minute left before the final act needs to be on. Interesting that they kind of push Mr. White on stage. So he almost is not backstage. It's almost up to Gershwin and Indy, and they finally get their way to go. I really, really like your point about the fact that it's almost sort of a little bit of a uh, sort of nod to sort of uh, the disapproval of Anne Pennington by the fact that Gershwin actually gets to present his music the way he wants, and Peggy gets the chance to sing and is not defied by Mr. White or anybody. So I like that kind of idea when he gets thrown out on the stage, and it's up to Indy to figure it out. Um, really, really like that. Something's gone wrong. And again, Gershwin, I mean, immediately suggests we're going to do the number, right? We know that's been on his mind for a while. They just have a piano out there. I think they just have a matte painting of like the moon and the stars. That's so simple, right? And we obviously know Peggy still has, you know, her beautiful costume from earlier. And to your point, what I really, really like is the fact that they do have these close-ups on all three of these different characters. And you really have sympathy for them again, right? I mean, we obviously see Indy screwed up. And I really, really like that Peggy is the one singing the song because neither Kate nor Gloria knows that Peggy has any affiliation with Indy whatsoever and the fact that she sings this love song my gosh we have so many paradoxes in this episode so many contradictory elements uh it's just really really cool when you think about how all of this comes together now one other thing I wanted to mention actually uh, is kind of interesting we were talking about sort of the map paintings and the digital technology in two documentaries uh, that came out a couple of years ago. One was a featurette for Attack of the Clones, and another was a documentary called A Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese. Uh, both of these actually feature very rare uh, behind-the-scenes shots of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, and both of those, uh, in particular, uh, talk with George Lucas and Rick McCallum, respectively, about uh, how they were able to create these map paintings, how they were able to do this digital, you know, sort of altering and all these sort of things. And you learn in the documentary that they only had about 100 extras for the scandal of 1920, and they just actually almost, in a sense, like, copy and pasted them into multiple sections and created this big stage atmosphere. So they actually didn't have that many people on stage when they were shooting it. It was all digitally added, uh, which I thought was really, really interesting. So both of those documentaries, I think, are on YouTube. Uh, I don't remember the exact names of them. I'm sure I can find them and remember them at some point. Maybe I'll throw them up on Twitter if you guys want to check them out. Uh, really cool to see some rare behind-the-scenes shots of Young Indy to see how they put this whole theatrical performance together. But in any case, let's talk about the final scene here, uh, which first starts with a sort of mini reception. Yeah, I like this, you know, the reception scene here. And I like how we have Indy. He's feeling the success and things are going well for him. I think he maybe even thinks he's escaped his fate here uh, with these three girls. But obviously that's wrong. I mean, we have, you know, George Gershwin here. He's running interference for Indy, um, trying to keep the girls apart. And he's like doing this barely by a thread. Um, but obviously this is about to all fall apart for Indy as they go into the powder room. Absolutely. And I think what's really, really powerful about that scene is coming off of the dynamic and emotion from Peggy singing, you know, we kind of forget that we have this whole sort of debacle with Kate, Peggy, and Gloria. And with only five minutes left in the episode, we think, oh, I, is this just going to be a happy ending? Like, this can't really go wrong now. You're kind of led astray into the wrong way. And we almost see that Indy is immediately worried about all of them. 
right? I mean, he's just put on this great performance. Somehow, you know, he was making it up as he goes. And actually, maybe that is the one connection to Raiders uh, that we really see here is because, I mean, this whole show was just sort of his sort of idea of making all this stuff up. Uh, but anyway, my question is, how is J.J. Shiler the only one who ever notices in these weird mannerisms. You'll notice he's met this guy for maybe just a few times in passing and says, why is that boy always in such a damn rush? I mean, he's <laughs> the only one who notices in these mannerisms out of everybody. Um, Gershwin's just, again, following along with the antics. Although it's interesting how he almost tries to save Indy in this case. He knows that what he's done is wrong, and he still is willing to help Indy out like any true friend would. But yeah, I also like as well how we do see what the reviews are coming from the local paper, right? And Indy, you know, doesn't really want to hear it. He just wants to hear what Kate has to say, but he's not listening at all, obviously. And yeah, you know, Gershwin's music, the best on Broadway, right? It puts the follies to shame, right? And sort of all these sort of great big ceremonious uh, reviews that the show has gotten. And I love how Kate says this to Indy on purpose. Uh, stage management was faultless. And I'm like, if you were back there, I think <laughs> you would have a little bit of a different idea of what was going down. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about the final scene of all three of the girls, obviously, going into the powder room at the same time, which originally you think wouldn't be that problematic. I mean, you know, maybe they'll say hi to each other, but there's no way that they're going to know they have any connection to Indy unless we talk about sort of all these elements coming back. Right. Um, I mean, I think you've got to feel bad for them because, you know, these are special things they gave away. But at the same time, it really makes for a comedic ending the way they all walk out. And so, you know, Indy's got his birthday. There's this great big cake, kind of very different from, you know, Petrograd. Um, and they all walk up to him. And it's so coordinated. I think they must have talked this out in the room before coming out. Slam his face into the cake and call him all these names and stuff. But it's really funny. And like the whole room is laughing at Indy at his expense, just like the audience is. Because he's finally, the house of cards has come down and he's finally gotten what he deserves. Yeah, and I think you talked about that final scene right there is the actual sort of finality of the musical play in the episode and the actual show for us as an audience come together as one. And that's the signifying moment when it says the end uh, because it's kind of comedic in that regards and also kind of putting a, an end to both of these stories. Um, and I think the thing that makes this scene hands down is the fact that there's no dialogue. I mean, I would have loved to hear all three of these girls bickering about Indy and sort of what happened to them. I think that would have been hilarious to hear. But at the same time, I mean, Joel McNeely is really the one who takes the cake, uh, pun intended there, uh, about uh, sort of what happens here. It's these musical cues that allow us to realize what's happening. And I think that's a really good example of filmmaking when you have no dialogue and we immediately know all three of these girls that were like, what? Like, and I love when they stand up together and kind of look at each other. Like, they, they don't immediately come to the connection that they're cheating on Indy. At least you can assume. The idea is that they see their item and they're like, how do you have it? Right? So again, to your point, there was some I, sort of, you know, conversation that happened that we didn't get to see. The other thing I wonder is sort of, how did everyone know it was Indy's birthday? He forgot himself, and somehow there's this whole surprise for Indy, which, I mean, I guess it's, you know, not that unrealistic. But, uh, yeah, the fin final ending of throwing his head into the cake, probably one of the most iconic moments in the whole show. And, I mean, if we are comparing this to Petrograd, I think in the end, this was anarchism in practice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if we finally want to take a look at this. Uh, and, yeah, what's tougher than defeating Mola Ram and the Thuggy Colt? 
I never thought I would say this, but I think this episode really does top that <laughs> in the uh, sort of uh, difficulty uh, that we have seen in Indy's life. And with that said, uh, final thoughts on this episode. Yeah, I mean, one thing you were saying right there, of course, I think maybe because he said it to Gershwin, Gershwin might have tipped everyone off that it was his birthday. And so that's why there was the cake and everything. Um, but let's get into our final thoughts here. The first time I watched it, it wasn't really one of my favorites, um, but it has been growing on me. And I'd say I do love the way it creates that 1920s feeling, as you were saying. Um, it, the atmosphere is great and everything. Casting is really well done. And overall, I, I have to say, I, I do love this episode quite a lot. You know, I think to me what sticks out the most about this episode is the thematic element that this episode really embodies. I think they did a really good job of sort of putting together an entire sort of musical story arc. I think when you compare like the two musical episodes, Mystery of the Blues Scandal, I think this one is 10 times better than Mystery of the Blues. I think it just does, you know, a lot more of sort of creating a certain atmospheric style of the 1920s and then following that with specific themes and original story. I think this really like perfectly combines the historical elements of the Algonquin Round Table, Tin Pan Alley, um, Broadway musicals, right? Like all of this stuff comes together and yet this is still a fictitious story um, that we're sort of having fun with. And I also like as well how this really represents sort of a typical young indie adventure. We see Indy as a very cultural guy. He's somebody who's always doing something new. And so for him, you know, over the summer to kind of go to New York and have this grand adventure, right? It might seem a little bit off-putting if this is the first episode you're watching. Like, what? This isn't like the next Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is like a horrible episode. But for those of us who have been watching the show the whole time, to your point... I think it really, really represents a well-done masterpiece. And I think George Lucas absolutely nailed it with this episode. Um, I'm not sure if I would put it among my top, top episodes. And of course, we have a rankings episode eventually. So I won't spoil my own uh, sort of opinions about each episode. But I think this one has to be up there. I mean, it's a really, really uh, fantastic episode, despite the fact that it deviates from the show. Um, I think it's just one of those sort of outliers that has such a unique importance to the show that it really, I think, just becomes uh, very significant and a vital staple of uh, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Great, as always, to talk with you about this one. And uh, we only have one more left. I can't even believe it. Uh, I know that sounds crazy, but we're now finally going to uh, sort of conclude everything. Uh, but I think, as I've mentioned before, you know, when we finish Hollywood Follies, it's really just going to be the beginning of quite a number of more Young Indie episodes. And of course, Elijah has some ideas and stuff maybe he'll want to revisit that I already talked about. So um, as always, guys, thanks so much for joining us uh, for our review of The Scandal of 1920. Of course, I think you guys know what the next one's going to be at this point. Um, and if this is your first time listening and you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please consider subscribing to our podcast uh, and leave a review. Uh, tell others what you think about the show. Uh, if you'd also like to learn more about us, be sure to visit our website, uh, www.theindianajonesuniverse.com. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter if you want to stay up to date on latest news uh, just in the indie community, specifically about our podcast. Uh, we've got our entire summer recording schedule up there. So if you want to know what episodes are coming out in advance, uh, make sure to follow us over there on Twitter at The Indie Universe. Uh, so thanks again for joining us, and we'll be back soon with another episode. Once again, I'm Elijah. And I'm Will. And until next time, so, so long, Dr. Dr. Jones. Jones.